Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 809 with Amy Morton. I paid no attention to the numbers and we were busy. We were very, very successful in the public side, but not in the banks. And so the biggest difference is, is now I operate my restaurants as a business. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one sink and surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness. To learn more, visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, and it feels so right to have Bento Box as a sponsor because I remember uh, beyond five years ago when I was researching my guests and finding people to have on the show, I remember there was a correlation between successful restaurants and Bento Box websites, and it just feels so appropriate to have them here sponsoring the show today. But Bento Box is way more than just websites. They're also online ordering and marketing. And you should know that Bento Box has new packages designed with the needs of new restaurants in mind. You can get everything you need to start marketing before you even open and succeed from day one. Current Bento Box customers have seen an average of 70% more website traffic, seven times more conversions, and five times their average ROI. Schedule a demo at getbento.com slash unstoppable and receive three months free. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today. Before I let you know what we got going on, just a quick reminder that this show needs your support. You can support this show by supporting our sponsors, using our links, sharing this podcast, and coming to hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Today, we're talking to Amy Morton, daughter of a legendary Morton's Steakhouse founder, Arnie Morton. And uh, this was a really great conversation. Amy had almost 10 years, the equivalent to a 10-year MBA, working alongside her father before opening her first restaurant, The Cafe, with her brother, Michael Morton. Uh, the Cafe was followed by Meridor in the Blue Room. And then after you know having some success, she decided to become a consultant and co-founded Van Hugh. 
uh, Houston Consulting in 1995. She had one more stint in the industry as director of operations for the KDK restaurants, which included Marche, Vivo, Red Light, and Gioco. I hope I'm saying those right. And uh, then she had that post until 2000, and she took a 10-year hiatus to basically have a family, raise some kids. When her babies were no longer babies in 2012, she got back to business and opened found kitchen and social house the barn steakhouse patty squared and stulp island social this is a really great conversation uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the lessons she learned from her father a lot of the uh goods and bads times in her life uh, where she was kind of low uh, but she got over those challenges and uh, lots of just really great things came from today's conversation this is a very raw open and honest conversation i hope you guys enjoy it here it is all right with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest owner operator of found kitchen and social the barn steakhouse patty squared in stulp island social amy morton amy are you feeling unstoppable today absolutely today and every day yes that is what we like to hear so i cannot (laughs) wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us do i only get to give you one you can give me as many as you want mantra give the guest what they want Mm. always say yes okay which I believe is missing from today's generation of yeah. upcoming restaurateurs and yeah. chefs. Um, those are those are my two. And think out of the box and, and I, trust your gut. Yeah, and it's weird because that idea of giving people what they want. There's that. There's a lot of conversation that seems to be bubbling up where sometimes a guest is wrong. Do you agree? Well, and it, if it so, happens, how so do you? So the handle guest that? is. Those are semantics. What's right and what's wrong? Yeah. The guest, in my opinion, and I'm old school, is the one in the chair being served. Yeah. And they may be rude. They may say that their steak is not medium rare. And, you know, according to our philosophy, it very well could be. Yeah. There's no point in fighting it. Exactly. Because it's their opinion. Yeah. So it's not really a right and a wrong. Though, as I said, I do think this generation of chefs and restaurateurs coming up does not look at it that way. And I have seen people taking that dish back and bantering over it in the back of the house as to whether the guest is right or wrong. doesn't matter. Rather than just dealing with getting them something they want. It just doesn't matter. And regardless of whether or not they are right or wrong, at the end of the day, hospitality is about warmth, generosity, right? So you just got to move on. And I I, I tend to lean in your direction for the record, but it's a little fun to have a little bit of a dialogue there. No. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? How did you get into the industry? I know your story, but let's start like I don't know anything. Well, I was born into the industry. I am fourth, and some may can say fifth generation restaurant wow. tour. I did not know that. And um, my dad was Arnie Morton, who did many restaurants, but is most remembered for Morton Steakhouse that he opened in '78. My grandfather, Morton C. Morton, 
was a restaurant tour on Chicago's South Side. My dad worked with him. Okay. And he also had a restaurant called Morton's, actually three of them wow. in varying locations. Uh, he opened in 32, right after Prohibition ended. His father was known as the neighborhood pharmacist okay. and had a back room where they were selling something really good out of coffee cups. <laughs> this is Prohibition times, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can only imagine. Uh, awesome. So w- at what point was, so when you first started working, was it just because your, your dad owned restaurants and it's an easy job to get or is it what you wanted to do? Like when did you know this is what you wanted? Mm. It went back and forth. So my first memory of being uh, in a restaurant, I mean, my dad worked for Playboy for 15 years. He was vice president of Playboy International and built all the clubs and hotels around the world. I don't think a lot of people know that Playboy started in Chicago. Playboy started in Chicago. I think the Playboy Mansion in Los Angeles or wherever it is. Well, the real Playboy Mansion was here in Chicago, which is where my parents met. Oh. And... uh, my dad had a little restaurant called the Walton Walk that okay. was a little sneak joint considered the first key club in Chicago. One of the first key clubs I think that people knew about. Okay. And there was a guy named Victor Lowndes, who I grew up knowing as Uncle Victor, okay. who was Hef's best friend from University of Chicago. And Victor was a man on the town. I... And he discovered the Walton Walk and Hef had printed... In his attic on a hand crank, the very first issue of Playboy in 1955 and wrote every single article himself. There's, yeah, there's a really great documentary, like a docu-series on like the startup of Playboy. It's very good. I remember Victor being in that. He's in it a lot. My dad is season four. My mother was very mad he was short and not handsome. Uh. (laughs) Because my dad was actually very tall, the tallest of all the guys. Yeah, that's funny. But um, Hef loved it. Or Victor loved it and went to Hef and said, this is what we need to create the empire. And What's they went this to my, exactly? Uh, a club. Gotcha. So they went to my dad and they asked my dad to join them. And my dad joined as vice president. And he built from that moment on every hotel and club through 72 when he said he got tired of raising his hand to go to the bathroom. Yeah. You know, um, the the Playboy story, I, I mean, I think when we think of like, we don't think about entrepreneurism when we think Playboy, but the truth is like, it's, a, it's an incredible entrepreneurial story. Uh, Half was brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. They all were. And they uh, all were. being so close to that organization, what were some of the lessons that you think you learned maybe subconsciously from just being able to observe that? Well, you know, I saw the entrepreneurship from my dad always and uh, his passion his commitment and it's it's really why he left because they had gone public and it was he didn't his hands were tied yeah um i didn't i don't think i really saw anything different in playboy yeah than i did in all the restaurants my dad went on to do later what was his passion my dad yeah hospitality mm-hmm. i mean it was showtime as he would say before he'd unlock the doors he'd say to me it's showtime, Aim. And he was on his stage at home. He had a super different persona, very quiet, zero small talk. But that door opened and he was on it and he could talk to anyone about anything. And um, 
it was magical to watch him. So what were the biggest lessons? I know you were working with him side by side for a while, like 10 years, almost a decade. So my first memory of going to work with him was when I was 10. He was building his first restaurant called Arnie's, which was his flagship. The steakhouse. No, No. Arnie's was a continental restaurant. It was known for continental cuisine. It was the first B&B scene restaurant Chicago had ever seen. It opened in 1973 in the same building, the Newberry Plaza, as Morton's. He actually had four restaurants in that building. Okay. And Arnie's was open for five years before he did the steakhouse. Okay. And we would go every Saturday morning and sweep it out after the contractors had been there and... I loved going in there and hearing the grit under his shoes. And he was in love with every aspect of the business. And he just, he wanted to be there. He wanted to make sure it was clean as a whistle. He wanted just to be in the space and live it and breathe it. Though it wasn't until I was 15 that I, actually I might have been 14. I usually say 15. Summer of (laughs) July of 77 was... um, I was 14, my first restaurant job, where he opened a restaurant in the town we lived in. Okay. And that is up on the North Shore of Chicago called Highland Park. And I was the crepe girl at the buffet. We had a grand buffet, and that's, in fact, all he did. He built the restaurant because he felt people were tired of having to get dressed up to and go to the yeah. city. He wanted to create a place where people could be dressed up and... You know, stay in town. Yeah. So I was the Sunday brunch crepe girl and then went on from there to do basically every position. And I worked with him until 1989 when I opened my first restaurant. So before getting to how you opened your first restaurant, reflecting at really getting granular about the specific lessons. I know it's going to be hard because he taught you so much over that, that time you worked with him. But reflecting on your dad. Uh, as far as a businessman and knowledge and what he did really well, what were the biggest things he taught you? Some of them are just coming to me now. Mm. For many years, I, I, not that I had my same go-tos, but were what you asked me in the beginning. Give the guest what they want. Mm. Say yes. Mm -hmm. Though now, I think the, besides being a creative genius and having an idea a minute, which Rich Melman is the first one always to talk about when I see him because that was the greatest gift he imparted on Richard. Was to say yes? Was being an idea man okay. and taking a space that might not be making it and reinventing it mm. rather than limping along or giving it up. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, to, to teach creativity, right? I don't think you can teach yeah, creativity, yeah. Uh, which we can get into, though. I think to me, that's a passion and you have it or you don't. Yeah. It's like a personality. If here at Found Steak, Found Kitchen, we hire, we look to hire servers and front of house players with a unique personality. Mm. Even if they're not the most skilled in food and beverage knowledge, we know we can teach that. Yes. But in this restaurant, for example, where every piece of furniture was found in unique and interesting places. Side note, I love this restaurant. I got B-roll before we sat down. Mm -hmm. They'll be rolling right now. Oh, I'm (laughs) glad. Well, just like these pieces have a story, so do we as people. And 
the people in this restaurant don't wear uniforms because who they are mm. is a part of the ambiance. And we can teach them the wine list, but we can't teach them to have a unique personality. Yeah. So that's one thing. But I want to get back to your question. Please, please. Because um, I took over a decade off and had my family. And so I went back to work. I opened this in 2012, even yeah. though I worked on it for five years. And I today will say what I'm most excited about and what is my biggest takeaway from my dad is the fact that you need to run it like a business yeah. and it's the costs and it's nailing down what sells and what doesn't sell because when you and I talked before the program started, you mentioned how low the margins were in this yeah. restaurant. Now, Richard Melman has changed that. I mean, they're operating they, – they won't even open a place that they can't open at 20%. Yeah, and, and that's part of the, what I'm hoping to do with this podcast is to let people know that you don't have to be beholden to the standard 10% or 15%. Like, and when my dad was in the business – he said the magic number was six. If he could wow. make six percent, and that's part of the yeah, that's part of the, the the broken model of this industry. And we accept it, which is part of the issue. But we need to collectively say that's not enough. That's not enough to to do what we're expected to do in, by today's standards. Take care of our people. We need more, right? Well, netting more doesn't necessarily mean paying up to our team, right? And we're not taking our net and distributing our profits to the staff because the staff is already built into our P&L by their payroll. So I see that as being different. Um, and both are crucial. Yeah. There are so many restaurants and we, I would think people would want to pay back their partners and it does seem more and more that the people that are opening multiple units, either of one concept or one-offs of one group, are the ones that are making more money. And you can't really get investors if you're not paying them back. Mm -hmm. But the idea of paying our team a living wage, I think, is you know one of the biggest conversations we need to be having. Obviously, we've seen it in the industry come up with no tip restaurants and the reason no tip restaurants have people are trying it is because we as operators know that there is an incredibly unfair distribution of earnings in this business due to tipping mm -hmm. and if we had the opportunity to distribute that we would distribute it much more equitably yeah and coming out of COVID, um, besides the fact that no one has any staff, and we can talk about that in a minute, and it's scary seeing what we're having to pay, particularly cooks. Scary meaning just to get oh, them, like how much or how, how much? Okay, how much? Oh my god! Yeah, we we can't staff the restaurant, and we're paying twice as much as we were ten years ago. I mean, it, right now because we're so close to it, and because we're having to make this change, I feel like the pain is really significant because it's right there. But do you think long term, meaning like when we like ten years from now, when we look back at this and like looking at the pandemic, I think there's going to be silver linings because I think there's going to be a lot of good 
a lot of positive things that come out of it. Maybe it doesn't feel positive because we're paying so much, but I feel like long term it's going to be a good thing. No, I think we've. I think those that have survived have already seen the silver linings. Yeah, I believe that those that have survived could not have survived without already recognizing the silver linings. They survived. There's yeah. oh, but there's so many silver linings. There's so many silver linings from the opportunity Whoops. to be super creative every day, but to the point of paying up in the kitchen, it is an adjustment that has been radically, radically needed and necessary in our business. Mm. And so the no-tip restaurants really weren't working out, and I don't think the public is ready for that in this country. Well, I think but simply yeah. by the need to pay up in the kitchen... It's it's balancing itself out naturally, and I I don't see it as being painful. I see it just as being necessary. Yeah, and they deserve it. Yeah, they do. And so I'm, you know, we're going to figure out a way to make it work. And the guest, I'm just going to go on for a second. No, please, this is what you're here for. Might not have wanted to pay twenty percent more a menu item to cover the gratuities. That they, you know, they, they didn't see like paying up 20% as being the wash for the tip that they don't have to leave. Though we are going, you know, and, and it seemed like, oh my God, now all of a sudden this restaurant's 20% more. But now we as operators are deciding do we need to raise our prices? Yes. Do we need to shrink our dishes to keep a price similar so that the guest doesn't feel um, gouged? And that goes back to this fundamental lesson from my dad is you got to watch the numbers. Yeah. You got to track it. You absolutely have to track it. You, you, if you don't know, like, how do you know how you're doing if you have, that, that, that's the game of business it, and that's how you keep score and how well you're doing, right? Those numbers are so That's important. how you stay open. Yeah, exactly. And that's winning, right? In this industry. But I mean, I want to unpackage a little bit more, um, Maybe I can come back to this later as we when we get more like chronological. I mean, this is a great rabbit hole. I'm happy we're talking about this. Um, we'll, we'll come back to this because I feel like I want to sure. go back to your story. Um, regardless to the numbers and things your dad taught you, can you get a little bit more granular as far as the specific? I know it's hard to like talk about without like, a spreadsheet in front of you, but what are some like the the little detailed things around the numbers that most people just don't know that your dad taught you? Um, well, going through the monthly P&L with a fine tooth comb, getting it as soon as possible, then waiting to the third week in the month, which we still do because it, this business is crazy yeah. and we're all doing a million things. I don't know that the specific details came from my dad. Okay. If he shared them with me, I did not hear them. I wasn't ready to hear them. I have learned the most significant lessons regarding the numbers from my brother, Michael. Okay. Um, I'm one of seven kids and all but two of us are and or have been in the business. My brother, Michael, is just under two years younger than me and has done unbelievable things in the restaurant business. And I'd say, you know, he's my toughest critic as my dad was when he was alive uh, no, my dad never was my toughest critic. But Michael really um, 
Michael's really smart with numbers, yeah. and he's given me my best tips. Okay, what are best, some of the best tips, tips such as payroll is our biggest and most controllable number. Yeah, I mean, when he said that to me, it had never crossed my mind. Just think about it. Payroll is our biggest and most controllable number. We say biggest, the biggest percentage, biggest cost, cost. Yeah, and percentage wise, it could be. But not if you control it. Mm-hmm. So you what, can, you what can is operate that control? It. Give me the examples of. Well, we write the schedule. Yeah. We so here's two examples or an example that I learned the hard way. When I opened this restaurant, found we opened in October of 2012. I had been working on creating the concept for about five years. I'd taken a lot of time off. I I knew every every tiny bit of what it would be. I found a location and I opened the restaurant. Now, when I found the location and I knew I wanted an existing restaurant because I didn't want to spend a lot of money on the build out. So I was already thinking about the math, but I chose a restaurant with two kitchens, which A, made it 20, 30% more expensive to operate because I had to staff two kitchens. Yeah. And I had decided on the style of food and the menu before I ever chose the location. So we had to back in to the location with our menu. Okay. Extremely expensive. Yeah. This is this is a chef-driven restaurant. It is very complicated. The food is very complicated. Are we talking about kitchen. This? Okay. Yes. We're not talking about your first restaurant, the cafe. No, 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 Got no. It. I'm talking about... It. I, it took me until this time around to get it. Got it. And... We are, you know, super local. The menu changes from day to day, et cetera. Insanely high payroll. Even when I tried to start tweaking it down. Now, the Barn Steakhouse, which opened four years later, I tried to use what Rich Melman told me on that one, which was first think about what your revenue is going to be. Then think about what net you want to take in and then you figure out how much your labor costs can be, how much your food and beverage costs can be. And then when you know how much your labor costs can be particularly, you create a menu based on what that number of cooks can produce. And after that, you build the kitchen. Yes. So So it's totally opposite. Start with the end in mind. Reverse engineer. That's a huge life lesson right there. What do we need? Where are we going? How do we get there? Not this is where we are and like this is this is make it happen, right? Well, we all go in. We all. I mean, restaurants are sexy, mm. right? They're kind of our our celebrity. They're our royalty in this country. Yeah, and we all go into restaurants all the time, and people think it's a really cool business to be in. We yeah. also, well, before there were ATM machines, all went to the bank. Yep. But nobody was dreaming about being a teller. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is I think the biggest problem with the restaurant industry and why so many restaurants fail is because people think it's really fun and they're creative, whether they're brilliant chefs or incredibly hospitable or have a cool concept. But they don't realize that a restaurant tour, a restaurant in order to make it, is not only operating from... Five till 10, for example, when you're open for dinner. But we also have to be in there from eight to six 
managing it. Mm-hmm. And you need both of those pieces to make it work. Absolutely. Um, you said we didn't get it until this time around. This time around, starting with found or with the steakhouse? So I have I look at myself as having had several careers in this business in this current lifetime. One was working with my dad. Yep. Um, I did the cafe, which was a project of my dad's with my brother Michael. That was Were the you a first. No, okay. Michael and I, I mean, they maybe it was ours, who knows. Yeah. You know, it it was never the focus. The money, the numbers were never my focus and we didn't think about it there either. I left very soon after that project started. Uh it I couldn't manage slash navigate the concept. You you know, you have to have a singular vision. Yeah. And I did it yes. with my brother and then my dad got involved and Different we were vision. 25 yeah. and it, somebody needed to have the vision yeah. and it wasn't mine. So I stepped away. Yeah. I opened my that's first That's a huge lesson, by the way. That's I just a huge like lessons too. put a stamp on that. Similar vision is so important. Why is it so important? Well, because if we don't have a singular vision, how can the guests know who we are? Yeah. And how can you, if, if, if you have three people who all have different visions, you're going to be pulling in a different direction and you're not going to be going to the same place. Well, I mean, besides the fact that it's a nightmare and who needs the conflict in like every day having a different opinion about somebody or something, whether it's the server, whether it's the cook, whether it's the menu item, I think it's a bigger deal in terms of communicating to the guest who we are because there are... Hundreds of thousands of restaurants on this planet. Mm -hmm. And we choose every day which one we're going to go to. And it has to be one that feels good to us. Mm -hmm. And usually we need to have a clear vision. Even if it's not the vision of what it is, it's a feeling of who it is. Yeah, the soul. And I don't think that can be conveyed to the guest if it's not clear to the people that create it. Now, what you're getting into is psychographics. And when you have a clear vision, a clear identity of who we are, that makes it easier for your guests to associate themselves with who you are. Because that's all we, when we're going out to eat, what we're subconsciously thinking is what are people going to think of me when I'm in this restaurant? Whether you want to admit it or not, like it's a people want to be seen and they want to be associated with what aligns with their values and their beliefs, right? So, if you're, you do you agree or disagree with that? Well, I don't understand what you're saying. Are you saying your philosophy is that a guest has a unconscious or subconscious thought? As to what others are going to think of them when they dine in a certain restaurant. Absolutely, it's status. It's it's like you look at like a lot of these. Um, right, right now, like healthy is really trendy, right? Well, uh, healthy is important. It's too. important. It, it should be trendy. It should be high priority. But also, when people go out to mm-hmm. a, a trendy, uh, vibrate. Like, vi- I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, but like vibrant. Uh, cool spot that is associated with all these values like wellness and health and you are seen in that restaurant. Now all these values that that restaurant have are associated with you and your personal brand. Um, we want to be associated with people that are like us because we want to be seen and thought of as like that. Whoa, that's heavy, man. You don't think I, so? You know what? I just don't go that far. Yeah. I don't know. I think there I is a little disagree. bit of truth there. I yeah. don't disagree. I status. Think- We're shallow. A lot of people are shallow. Like we want to be seen and associated with certain things. I don't disagree. 
I definitely think it is sub slash unconscious. And I think the reverse is true as well. Yeah. And I'll give you the reverse. And that is when I, and I know we're jumping all over the place. No, this so is Tom, fun. If you want to go back to the we're having a conversation. order. I never know what we're going to talk about. <laughs> is when, so, okay. So I'm going to go back to one of your first, first questions. I loved working with my dad. But I, when I first opened my own restaurant, Mirador, in 1989, after the cafe, which was really my first one, soon after, you know what? I did not like this business. I never felt that I chose it. I felt that it chose me. I felt that I kind of got pushed into it. I felt that I uh, chose it because it was easy. I gave up my real dream, which was being an actor. That's really what I wanted to do. And... For a million reasons that we can or cannot get into, even on the busiest nights, I just felt like something was missing. I felt that things, the, and the, whether it was the success or just what I started doing day in, day, in, out, day out was meaningless. So when I got an opportunity to sell that restaurant, thank goodness. Yeah. Let, let's zoom to a 30,000 feet yeah. real quick, get the big picture. So 1989. Um, you open uh, with your brother and your dad the cafe. Uh, 1989, you also, you were only there for a short time. 1988, I opened the cafe with my brother. 1989, so, I opened you. Mirador. Mirador. And, you were, and the Blue you, Room. That was six years till 1995, correct? 1993, it was open four years. Okay, four years. But you opened the Mirador in the Blue Room in the same year, uh, three or four years, you said, uh, to 94, was it? My, my timeline was 93, we were open three. We were okay. open four years to the day, almost. So... Um, and then 1995, you opened your consulting firm. So I went from having my own restaurant. I still obviously needed to support myself. I only really knew the entrepreneurial vein. I did not want to punch clock. Yeah. I started a consulting business with a really, really smart woman by the name of Alice Van Heusen. We did that for a few years. It was fun. We did it on our own time. We really didn't have very many clients, but... It paid the rent. Yeah. And from there, I, in terms of the industry, I went to my final job before I took a break was as director of operations of what was at the time the IT restaurant group in Chicago called KDK, which had Red Light, Vivo, Gioco, um, and Marche restaurants on Randolph Street, Jerry Kleiner's restaurants. Yeah. And... That's the first time I ever, that's the first and last time I ever worked for somebody. And it was a fantastic experience. Time out there. We have some people at the door. All right. We're back. Uh, We just let the folks in. Uh, We have a special event happening here in a little bit. So um, there'll be some people walking in the background. But real quick, you painted that big picture for us, right? Of what happened between basically 88 and um, before taking your break to, to raise a family, right? 99, 98. Yeah. yeah. So before giving us that big picture, you were a little granular saying that um, it never felt right, right? At this point, like you, you were kind of still lost. You're still trying to figure out what you were trying to do, who you are, and what role. I don't know. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but go back to that point and take it from there. Well, first of all, I wasn't old enough to manage my personal life, let alone a restaurant. How old are you at this point? Not to date I you. Was, I was 27 when I opened Mirador. Okay. And I had just turned 27, had it for four years. And I 
was coming out of what I call my black period. Okay. I was super rebellious. I did not want to be associated with the Morton family. I wanted to strike out and be seen as my own person. So I think there was a lot of rebellion going into that first restaurant, not taking anybody's help, um, didn't want anybody's opinion. Boy, I could have used it, but I was not going to ask. Yeah. And my, my personal passions were theater and doing social organizing. I got my degree. I did a ton of theater, but I got my degree in anthropology and studied third world housing development and economics. Okay. Um, so the area around homelessness had already become a big part of my life. I worked for the city of Chicago's planning department in their home, doing homelessness research. I worked for not for profits. So I, I feel that I innately, by the time I was in middle school, even, um, had a feeling that I wanted to, I wanted, I, I it was almost, um, not that I wanted to give back. That sounds kind of cheesy. Though I was born with such privilege that it felt that just part of my life needed to be working in an area with a more marginalized population. I I wasn't drawn to it in a way that it was some weird, surreal, like, oh, I want to get the inner look. But I just, I felt that I'd been so lucky that yeah. I wanted to work with others to make their well, life a little bit of a better place. Like that. So that's, you know, I want to give you a little bit of a, a nod because <laughs> not everybody thinks like that. So thank you. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm a little uncertain as to what it was that made you feel uh, like you were lost. Like this, 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 at this point in your life, this industry was not fulfilling you. Uh, but it is now. So what was different then? Oh, well, everything was different. One, I was partying a ton. Yeah. I was in my 20s. Woohoo! It was the <laughs> 80s. Um, I, again, I said I'd really separated from my family and was trying Isolated. to strike out and yeah. doing my own thing. And so I think there was a lot of push in that. I had, for the first time separated from these core passions of theater and working in the homelessness realm of, of doing not for profit yep. work. And I just think it, it was just a realization that things were hollow, that it, it wasn't enough just being the hostess with the mostess. Mm -hmm. And I really could turn on being the hostess with the mostess, which is another thing I learned from my dad because <laughs> nobody was better than working around. I love the host position, by the way. And I think I just recently mentioned this to somebody that I think it's the most underrated position in a restaurant, maybe tied with the dishwasher. It is, as I say to every host, you are not just being hired as a host. They, I believe in, and that's really where I got that's my, my yeah. groundwork. It's the orchestrator of the oh, entire man. restaurant. You are the governor. You have your hand on the valve. It's it, well, and more than that, I think you are the first person they speak to. The You're last. the last. Yeah. You are the one that can, you are the one that controls the flow to each and every server, 
to make sure that the timing of the tables is one that the servers can manage. And therefore, the timing of the tickets coming into the kitchen, you need to know when to stop. Yep. When to push, what when to communicate, what each individual person can handle. Hundred yeah. yeah. percent, absolutely. Yeah. Is a lot. It's not. And I'm just like when I had a babysitter when my kids were little. Honestly, I could not. Was not going to have them read yeah. a book when they were napping. I was like TikTok. <laughs> We've got laundry to fold. It's a. It's a massive multi. I mean, everything in the yeah. restaurant business is multitasking. But um, so, if I'm hearing you correctly, what was going on during this period is. Uh, I mean, just kind of a loss of identity. And plus you putting yourself on this little island, trying to do it on your own. And the truth is, if you're opening a restaurant, you cannot do it on your own. You need help. Right. And you're just kind of, you know, coming into full adulthood, right. Where like the world's changing. You're trying to maybe get some self identity and maybe you didn't have direction. Is that safe to say? I had drive. Okay. And I do, I do agree that Drive and direction are different. And I would say perhaps I didn't. I just, I was just, I was on the highway going without a real plan. And you asked what the difference was. And it is when I sold Mirador, thank God I was lucky enough to, right? Because most people just close. Yeah. I had my, two of my very best friends had moved to Thailand. Okay. I love Thailand. And, oh, so incredible. And my friend Dick um, is a Vietnam, Vietnam vet. And he had gone back to retrace his steps with his wife in Vietnam. And they stopped over in Thailand to chill. Yeah. They fell in love with it and they moved there. Where in Thailand? I'm curious. They still live in Rayleigh Beach. Okay. Which is out of Krabi Town. So South. South. Yeah. yeah. North of Phuket. You know I what? Think. I've never been to Phuket. It was already commercial back in the 90s. So... I never went, I always just went to their beach, yeah. you know, but anyway, I went, I fell in love with it and I was also starting to really reconnect with myself and meditation was something that I was starting to explore and Buddhism. I'd actually been seeing a therapist for 10 years who one day I realized was actually a Buddhist and like these little tidbits he'd given me and things I was reading kind of were falling into place. So that year after I sold Mirador, I did my first 10 day silent meditation retreat and oh, I did no, that in Thailand. No words. <laughs> no yeah. words, no yeah. reading or no writing. Wow. No reading or no writing is way bigger than no words. What was that like? Mind-blowing. Completely transformational. How were you different when you came out of that? Well, I wasn't that different when I came out of that. Though it is the catalyst to what became. And um, besides that, meditation and yoga, which I'd always been interested in, really started becoming a part of my life. I also decided to... um, enroll in a school called the Barbara Brennan School of Healing. So I did a four-year program at the Barbara Brennan School, which is on energetic healing. And Reiki. Well, it's kind of the, well, the, the chelation, which is sort of the fundamental skill that Barbara Brennan teaches, is the opposite of Reiki because you begin with your feet. It's in all in the same realm. And, you know, everyone in the school, well, we're going to school to be healers. But what 
certainly I realized, and I think most people realized, is we were really going to the school to heal and learn about ourselves. Mm. And so my life took a really different direction, super holistic. I, for the first time, started thinking about natural foods since I was in high school and chewing on licorice sticks to stop smoking (laughs) when I thought it was so cool in the 70s. And you know, went through the refrigerator for the first time in my pantry and threw away everything that had artificial ingredients and preservatives in it. Mm-hmm. And just really changed my life. I will say probably the biggest thing that changed my life was that I quit smoking pot. Mm. And am I allowed to say that on your show? Yeah, but I mean, you might have to convince me to stop smoking pot. Uh, <laughs> but I was a pot addict. And okay. I. What's that look like? How do you know? I, I honestly. People I'll say you can't be addicted to pot, but I was. I believe it's a psychological addiction. Yeah, you know, I kind of. I've, I've been very. Like, I was very self conscious about smoking weed for the longest time because I was started the success podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And like you kind of feel like it's like this uh you feel like you have to live a certain life to be kind of like a leader or to like be an mm-hmm. example or whatever and i was like are people gonna listen to me if they know that i like to smoke weed it's like when i got my nose pierced i'm like yeah. are people gonna take me seriously anymore? yeah so people like, are like did when am, did you do that yeah like i am interested in this because like i've I, it's like an internal battle that i deal with sometimes but like i i honestly like to smoke at the end of my day because it's a way for me because if i don't I can't shut my brain off, you know? So it's a way for me to kind of relax and kind of just, it's like my cookie at the end of the day Hmm. before I go to bed and it helps me sleep. Um, But do you think that's an addiction? No way. Well, listen, I can't call that. I'm not, I don't believe any one of us can call or label somebody else's use something. I think I do think it makes addiction. me dumb sometimes. Like, I'm like, am I getting stupid? Like, <laughs> <laughs> can I find my keys? I Where slow? did I park? I can never remember anything anymore. It may affect your um, So, I mean, I have a lot of addiction in my family. A lot of alcoholism. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And also depression and anxiety. So, my definition of addict is probably somebody who's using whatever they can use negatively that? impacts yeah. their life well can you paint a picture of how often you were stoned oh like was it like yeah. you wake up and you, you, you wake know? and bake every day yeah i was stoned for 20 years from before my feet hit the floor in the morning until i was laying in bed at night even if i could scrape that resin out of the pipe mm. nobody threw away more weed than me <laughs> i was always trying to quit after a certain age and I couldn't. Yeah. And so that's why I consider myself an addict because I could not You were quit. stoned more than you were sober. If I was not high, people would say, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Is something the matter? And I think, oh my God, that's so weird. It's yeah. because I'm not high. Yeah. I was always high. Mm. When I worked at City Hall of Chicago, I would go in the bathroom and do one hits. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's what I did. Mm-hmm. And when I applied to the Barbara Brennan School- when I first read the application, it said no drugs. And I'm like, okay, fine. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to, then I can't apply. Yeah. And I decided I was going to apply. And the last time I got high was on, in the car on the way to the airport to go to the program. Was it good? Don't even remember. It was always the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was always the same. Yeah. And so I think that is that in Barbara Brennan were the great catalysts of my life. And um, 
my daughter, I said, I'm going to start getting high again when my girls get out of college. And now they're like, can't it just be when you get out of high, when you get out of high school? So, <laughs> 18, right? you or know, do you have to be 21 to legally, to legally, you have to be 21. Yeah. So, you know what? I don't feel the same way anymore. I think that I have grown so much. And I think that not only have I grown, I think that I have integrated all of who I always was with who I am today. Yeah. And I want to unpackage this. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about how you grew the, the before and after. But before we take a break to thank our sponsors and get into like the more present day, who you are today and how you've grown, uh, reflecting back at those three restaurants you had, the Cafe, Mirador, and the Bloom Room, you've evolved so much as, as a restaurateur since then. The knowledge you've garnered, uh, your perspectives, looking back, knowing what you know now, reflecting back at those restaurants, aside from your personal things, uh, that, that your, your inner demons that you're struggling with, looking at the business, what would you have done differently? If anything, or were these super successes? I don't know much about how these, these restaurants did. I think I'm very, I, I think fundamentally I am similar. I, I'm going to take the cafe out of the picture because yeah. that was just. Mirador in the Blue Room. Mirador in the Blue Room were in the same building. They were opened at the same time. One was a live music bar and one was a restaurant. It was sort of that 80s. O-bar, New York vibe of, hey, who wants to have to go to two places to party? Like, let's have dinner and then go upstairs. I think that what set me apart in my family and what continues today is my passion for quality, for being chef-driven, for having the product ingredient speak for itself and being just super quality driven, um, which there was a change in the seventies when things were still in the cans and early eighties. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's a big reason why we are in the situation that we're in now is because we fucked up food real bad yeah. and we made it really cheap and convenient. Totally. And then people, and then we decided, Oh God, this isn't good for us. We need to go back to the way we were, but we conditioned society to think that that what we were doing was normal. And we just, we don't have a value for food. Not to, I digress. We can talk about I, that later. I completely we agree. We did to ourselves, but let's put that in the back burner because mm-hmm. we'll talk about that later. So as far as operations go, systems, processes, procedures, the numbers, were you doing it right then? Because you, you had your brother. All I, all I did, no, but I wasn't, I didn't use my brother until this oh, time that's around. right, because you were because isolated. Because then I didn't, I, it wasn't even that I was isolated. I did From a cool family, night. Right? We did the, <laughs> well, not really. I mean, even my brother, when I had mirror door in the blue room, we did a, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was like, oh, dangerous liaisons on Wednesday nights in the blue room and my brother hosted it and everybody drank blue cocktails. (laughs) So, you know, I was connected to my family then, though I wouldn't take any help. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I didn't even, I I never even balanced a checkbook. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing. I, I paid no attention to the numbers and we were busy. We were very very successful in the public side, but not in the banks. Mm-hmm. And so the biggest difference is, is now I operate my restaurants as a business. Yeah. And that's another thing too, I think, and, and that's still to this day an issue where you're successful in the public eye, but not in reality. Because even to this day, I go and I interview the successful people, right? I'm going, I'm researching people to interview and I get to this point where I'm sitting across the table from them and they're like, we're crumbling on the inside, Mm. you know, but these are people that are, you know, like, 
you have food and wine, GQ, James Beard. Like we are celebrating these people. And I think we're fucking each other because like we were saying, this is, this is what you want to aim for. This is what it takes. Do this, do this, do this. We celebrate those people. That's what people aim for, but it's not sustainable, you know? And we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure. I think I'm getting, I'm getting into the future again. I, I think it goes back to something that you said about society. Yeah. And I think that debt and the fact that over the last 30 years, we have started living our lives and running our businesses with debt, that I believe is the biggest problem. Yeah. Because our margins are so low, once you start paying interest in any way, shape, or form in this business, you're screwed. Yeah. I because think, we can't support it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is a good time to take our first take our first break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to kind of pick up um, where we were left off, where okay. this new version of yourself, right? Who wants to be more efficient and cleaner? Everyone. So streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one sink and surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness and also kills SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 in 15 seconds, and norovirus, the flu, and common cold viruses in 30 seconds, helping you reduce risk, simplify your procedures, and help protect your team, your guest, and your reputation with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. We're back and let's start talking about this new version of you. You know, you, you go to the, the, was the Barbara, Barbara Brennan school of healing and you just kind of get a little bit more centered. You're thinking holistically now, mm-hmm. uh, what's going through your mind? Are you, are you, do you, cause you said you it took five years before opening, um, found, right. Were you saying like, I, were you done with the industry? Like just take us to that point. What's going through your mind? I entered, I started Barbara Brennan. I also was in the Chicago School of Massage Therapy because being the go-getter that I am, when I started Barbara Brennan, they said we could not practice unless we had a complementary practice already. So I figured, hmm, Barbara Brennan's four years. I can do Chicago School of Massage Therapy in one year, have that as my complementary practice and start working. I was also working, you know, in those days, 80, 90 hours a week in the restaurant business as director of operations of KDK Restaurant Group. And in June of my first year, at the end of my first year in Barbara Brennan, I met my husband. Okay. And two weeks after I met him, I said, I'm quitting my restaurant job. And I never thought about working in a restaurant again. I mean, in fact, when, when I sold Mirador, I never even wanted to eat in a restaurant again. I mean, it was just like, keep me away. I don't even want to think about it. And I was 37 when we met. So TikTok, we had three girls really, really quickly. Best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And was a stay-at-home mom until my oldest was 12. And they're less than three years apart. But as they started getting older... I started 
kind of dab, like just thinking about who I was going to be when I grow up. And <laughs> at, to the age ta- of, at the age of 40. Exactly. <laughs> um, and hopefully we're yeah. always thinking that, yeah, yeah. right? Always growing. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. How boring would life be? Exactly. Getting stuck in, in whatever we think is fine. Abs- absolutely. So to tie the two time frames together, one of my very, very best guests at Mirador back in the 90s was a guy by the name of Art Smith. Okay. And Art worked for Amtrak. Okay. And he was the chef on Amtrak. Okay. And he loved Mirador. He'd sit in the very, we only had 42 seats. He sat in the back table, a little deuce against the wall. He was friends with Chef Carol and we got to know each other. Fast forward, Art Smith became Oprah Winfrey chef. I, was say, I know that name. I, I think he's on my radar. So I'm pretty sure he's on my spreadsheet. Art became big. Yeah. And we hadn't talked in 100 years. And somehow out of the blue, we connected. Now I've already had children. I haven't worked in ages. He and his partner, Jesus, come over for lunch. He calls me the next day and he said, let's open an organic restaurant. And I thought... Sure, let's do it. And so for a year, I started working on this concept. What I realized was it was never going to be with him Mm. because it was just an idea he had one day and I kept trying to keep him in the loop and we did meet every now and then, but it was my, it became my concept. And although I didn't um, go the distance on organic because my, I have so many opinions on organic, but sustainable, being local, buying from people I know, knowing how they raise, you know, their produce or their animals became way more important than if they had a certification. And that is eventually what became Found Kitchen, where we're sitting now. Mm-hmm. And so it was from that first lunch with Art that I started dabbling. So that, that was a, that was like the the spark. That was right? the spark. Yeah. And, you know, looked at restaurants in the city, looked at spaces, but I really took a ton of time. And because I'd had so much time off, I was no longer stuck in that restaurant box of what things had to be. And people would say, when I tell them my idea, oh, that's not a restaurant. You can't do that. That's not a concept. And I mean, where we're sitting right now, this is not what found kitchen looks like. Pre-COVID, there would be tons of couches and alternative seating. And, you know, right now we're still socially distanced Mm -hmm. and we need to maximize our tables. So that's that's what happened. And it was that time frame that it just it was such an opportunity to create and not have pressure. And uh, it was all of it that is, I believe, what made me happy in what I do. Yeah. For so, do you think it was the pressure I, that before that that made it? Because there's no pressure now. Was it because because I of, decided? Mm. Well, one, we were having financial issues in my family, my husband and I, mm-hmm. and so it started as really exciting, like oh, I could do a restaurant. But it grew into I not only want to be, but I need to be, and make a financial contribution to our family. Mm-hmm. And this is what I knew. Mm-hmm. So for the first time, money mattered to me. Um, I think growing up with all that privilege, I had so much shame around money that I 
shunned it. Mm-hmm. I really didn't have the value of a dollar. I never needed to have the value of a dollar. I pretended that I didn't have money, yet I always had something to fall back on. Yeah. And so now as an adult, I have children. I have no money to fall back on. And I, I have a great skill and, and something that I've always been great at. And once the idea grew out of me, it, I, I was unstoppable. Yeah. yeah, you had that vision, right? And, and it took all of that for me to grow up. Yeah. So what was different about you going out this time? I mean, you're, you're saying it, but really distill. And you also said for the first time, and I cut you off. You money wanna, mattered. Yeah, for the first time, money mattered. Um, going into this new project with all these new values, being holistic, uh, money matters. You have a family to take care of. How are you going into this restaurant differently from your other restaurants? Well, AI chose it. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you choose the other ones? You got thrown. It was more those? default. Okay. It was more rebellion. And this was choosing it wholeheartedly out of want and need. And it was. being aware of bringing the integrated Amy into this. Mm -hmm. I was not going to be the um, superficial, stereotypical hostess with the mostess at the door. I was going to bring in the depth of who I was and still be hospitable. And there was a more of a genuine nature, which is actually one of the core values here at this restaurant group is being genuine and authentic because people know when we are and yeah, when we're not. They can smell it, right? Uh, you, so you said you, at this point, opening this restaurant, you didn't have any money, right? Your, face, your family was facing financial issues. And this is where it gets personal, starting to talk about money. But how did you – I mean, this is a good-sized space, right? Um, how did you get the money? To, did you have investors? Like, what did you do? How did you get those investors? Well, first of all, one of the reasons behind choosing an existing space, one of the reasons behind – 85 to 90% of the contents of the space being found and reclaimed is because it was so inexpensive. So first of all, I knew, and I, oh, one other little tip. I believe the majority of restaurants close, not even because we don't think of it as a business, because plenty of smart business people fail in restaurants. I will say the number one reason most restaurants close is because they spend too much building them out. Yes. It's a waste of money. I mean, like, Fancy equipment, thousand dollar this, and it's yeah. just they it's have silly. This vision, right? And they're like, "This is my vision," and they don't think that they're ready to start until they execute their vision on day one. And that's just not the case. Start where you can. 100%. Start where you can and have that vision and work towards it every day. And the guest gets when it's real. People, yeah. people, it's like an insta house. Yeah. Some sometimes people want to move in and have their house one hundred percent decorated. And then other people choose a piece and it takes a long time to curate. And it's not like they're curating it, but it's growing out of who they are. Yeah. And I think those are things that not only our guests and our team, but of course our partners yeah. feel. And so I did go out and raise money for the restaurant. Yeah. How much um, do you think you needed to raise? Well, I, I didn't know. Originally, I thought $500,000. I wound up raising six hundred and fifty. And you probably it's, wish you had a million. <laughs> nope. No, really? I, 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 wish I, I, I wish I would have done it for a little bit less. Okay. Actually, I wish I would have run the restaurant better the first two years because I would have paid back. Yeah. 
But even in those first two years, still learning, those were my biggest years of education those first two years because yeah. my my labor cost yeah was crazy okay let's get into that so if you ran the first two years better you would have paid back faster you would have been like what would you have done knowing what you know now what did you do what would you have done i wouldn't have been afraid of the woman that i brought on to be the chef is this uh gibbs or nicole peterson peterson okay so i knew i wanted to work with a woman I am not a chef. I love food. I knew the food I wanted. Both of my chefs at Mirador were women. It was a gut. Just like when I bought a house, I knew I wanted to live in a corner or have a lot next to me. I knew that I wanted to work with a woman and it was feeling like it was not going to happen. And an old friend, a guy by the name of Greg Hall who I did one of my consulting projects with when I had that business, yeah. um, who also went on to be huge because he and his dad were the founders of Goose Island Brewery. Everybody that touches you goes on to be huge. I'm hoping that after this interview, like I, I'm mainstream. I'm on my own show. It might take a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's funny. That's what happened with my dad too. Anyway, what, I was out for beer one night with Greg and he's like, you know what? And I told him the story. He's like, I, I think I have someone for you to talk to. And it was Nicole. Nicole Peterson, I will forever be more grateful for than I can say. She was and, and remains a brilliant chef and found would never have been what it was without her because our synergy uh, from the synergy of us, the synergy of the vibe of the restaurant to the style of the food. From day one, it was like we were open for five years mm -hmm. and people got it. And um, the problem was, is we didn't get along mm. and I was afraid of her. And I didn't have the confidence yet to take full ownership. I really, I, I so wanted to have a partnership when I opened the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And that was something that, yeah, one, I didn't, I think I didn't go back to work for a long time because I was, I didn't think I could raise money. I didn't want to ask people for money. I think that gets back to my shame piece about being privileged. I felt like people were going to do me a favor as opposed to building a great business and creating a great opportunity. Like that idea was, like I didn't get that. Like, I mean, it was a yeah. joke. And um, I think that had something to do with Nicole's and my issues because I really wanted a partner. I think that I came from a background of being uncomfortable about talking about money and it being kind of loosey-goosey and her being an independent uh, woman on her own. And she was, you know, needed to make yeah, a mark and needed yeah. an income and yeah. needed the security. And... Then our personalities just, it, it was, you know what? We worked together for five years. I will be forever grateful, but it, it was a huge struggle. So knowing what you know now, people listening to this who are about to go into a partnership, what advice do you have to them regarding partnerships to, to set yourself up for success early on? <sighs> well, then we have to get into the conversation of partnerships because I never had a partnership. Yeah. And I, the best thing I ever 
I thought I needed it, it's confidence. I felt like I needed a partner, and so I put insecure? it out there. I super underconfident about whether I could do this or not. Yeah, I mean, and in the beginning, I kept going back to these people who I worked with at Mirador that my dad worked with at Playboy, and my husband, um, and in fact, we just got divorced, but um, have a good relationship, would say. Why are you going back to that same well? Yeah. You've got to stop. Yeah. You need to think for yourself. You need to think differently. You need to X, Y, and Z. And I didn't realize that about myself. And that was still this part of this underconfidence of this go-to. It was this underconfidence of I need a partner. And I think that someone needs to think long and hard about what a partnership is. Mm. Many partnerships I'm thinking most partnerships fail. Mm -hmm. Some partnerships are amazing. What Rich Melman has done are amazing. What Donnie Medea has done is amazing. What Kevin Boehm done has done is amazing. Um, one of my brothers had a successful partnership. Two of my brothers had very unsuccessful partnerships. And I think communication, uh, intentionality, and ego – are all parts of the puzzle. And I think what I did with Nicole was set it up. I don't think I knew what a partnership, I hadn't decided. I didn't even know there were different definitions of partnership. And, you know, when I went into it with Nicole, I think when I said the word partner, like I want to make you a partner one day if we work out, is... Set an intention. Or an expectation? I did, and I think that we didn't talk about it, and I didn't make it clear. Because to me, it was, I'll give you 10%. Yeah. And to her, I think it was, we're going to be 50-50 partners. Okay. So this and is I a think big that lesson. aided her. Yeah, this is a big, big, big lesson. Every agreement, every partnership needs to be spelled out in writing, and you need to get attorneys, or in, uh, attorneys oh, involved. Absolutely. It, it needs to be spelled out. There needs to be a plan. You can't just... Say it right. Uh, partnership agreements are huge. Uh, I think that's we can probably wrap that up with just saying that, right? Just well, communicate, be clear, right? Well, it down. yeah, but but when we started, there was no agreement, yep. but just the definition of partnership became this gnawing issue. And then I just think our personalities, yeah, um. The worst came out. Yeah. Something comes up a lot in the show. If going into a restaurant partnership with somebody is like getting married. hundred percent. And you have to, you're, you're marrying this person. So the question is, are you willing to get into a marriage? And if the answer is no, then it's not going to work. And you're probably going to see that partner more than your actual significant other. Even if you don't yeah. go into a partnership, you <laughs> yeah. do. Yeah. We're still, I mean, we jokingly call this and it wasn't something that somebody chose, but everybody calls working in these restaurants, the found family. Yeah. So we have 25 minutes left again. Okay. What are we talking I, and about? And I want to make sure that, so that first two years you said that there was money, there was money issues, right? Cause you, you weren't. Well, we, we, our revenue was huge. We were yeah. doing $3 million a year. Okay. And we weren't making money. So what changed in that two years that went from you had the high revenue, but you weren't being profitable? I was not managing it as well as I needed to. What did you start doing differently to manage it? I took over. I took control. I set um, guidelines. 
I, rather than saying this is where we need our labor costs to be, I said this is where it will be. Yeah. I said, you know, our... What things did you start doing to shift that labor cost and get it to where it will be? A lot of conflict with Chef Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We had to change our... We had to change the way we operated. We had to change our menu. And we still really, really weren't successful. We really didn't get this. I mean, that's like one of the biggest gifts of COVID um, until after she left because we had already set a precedent of the food with these two kitchens Mm -hmm. Um, which we're not opening. We're not even going to consider opening the second kitchen until we can fully seat the restaurant again. Um, so and so it was labor and food cost, and in that we need to. You need, I believe, you need to think and or rethink the fundamental philosophy of the service style and the food. I don't think you have to. Change. I don't think you can change the philosophy of the restaurant. We had an incredible philosophy. We needed to figure out how to operate within the bounds of yeah. what we could spend. So the biggest thing I'm, I'm hearing from you is instead of just being kind of reactive to what was happening, you said, this is where we're going to be. That's the end in mind. What needs to happen to get there? Yes. And you force those things into place. Yes. So what were the biggest things that happened to get there? I'm well, looking, her and I eventually not working together. Yeah, so like, so that kind of gave you control of the labor costs in the back of the house. It, you know, it's interesting. So there is another piece in the puzzle. A gentleman by the name of Stefan Bosworth. Okay, Stefan came on as general manager three months after Found opened. When I made, and this is another, this is an, just another one of the pieces of the internal conflict. When, and that's a triad, when I offered Nicole equity, I also offered it to Stefan. Okay. And it, it is another piece of the puzzle, I believe, that led to the just disintegration of our relationships. Nicole didn't feel as important Yet I really felt that Stefan was a huge value. I didn't want to place Nicole's value over Stefan. Uh, that it, it just it became a little messy. Yeah. I too am forever grateful for Stefan's contribution. We all went on to do the Barn Steakhouse together. By the time I did Stolp Island, neither one of them were involved anymore. Stefan did go on. I mean, he did. So much. Yeah. Though decided he wanted to take a different direction in his career and wanted to get more into the financials. And another silver lining of COVID is he and his partner decided to move back to the Northwest and they bought a little like 750 foot square foot restaurant and they're opening, they opened on Woodby Island. So now... Even since Stefan, since Stefan changed his status of employee to financials and was now an independent contractor, that's when, that is truly when I got to take over. Okay. And that is another phase of making a massive amount of difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have 15 minutes together. So give us, 
just like the, the shortest possible synopsis of the difference that that made. And then we'll start to wrap up the free flowing and we'll go to the speed round. Being the end all and be all, not having to tiptoe around or worry about other people's opinion and to create relationships within a work environment where that is understood from the beginning. Just directness, clarity, <laughs> communication. This is where we're going. A no brainer. Yeah. hundred percent. Right yep. And I, everybody's, everybody's got the same fundamental understanding of what goes on at the end of the day. Someone will, which yeah. is me yeah. make the final decision. And we are incredibly collaborative. It's what we do. I think it's why we've all worked together for so long. And never a question at the end of the day, I still I get to it. say. I love it. Anything we have not discussed today that you were oh. hoping that we could discuss that would add more value to the conversation? How much more time do you have? I mean, I would go forever, <laughs> but I want to respect your space. No, no, I'm terrific. I love your questions. Thank you so much. Uh, one thing I am curious about uh, that I think is big is you, you, we started talking a little bit about this with sustainability. Um, and that world of what needs to change, uh, looking to the future, uh, with the values you have, with the experience you have, what do you think needs to change about the industry? I mean, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry, change the industry. What needs to change? Pay rates, A. Uh, we need to become more equitable in the front of the back of the house. We, as operators, need to... Not be afraid of charging what we need to charge in order to operate a viable business. Okay. Um, what what needs to? Ha- I think this is something I was going to say earlier. Uh, is that I think we are very reactive. We are a very reactive industry. We always react to the market. I think that's kind of ingrained in us. I think one of the big things and I want to get your feedback is that I think we need to start making the market react to us. I need, say, you to, I need you to explain that a little bit more. We need to start educating the public as to what needs to happen within the restaurant industry for us to be equitable, for us to do all these things that you just said. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know that I agree on the... I don't have all the, the answers. On the, <laughs> ma- on the macro level, yeah. I know what you're talking about and I don't disagree. On the micro level, I don't. So my analogy is... A wine list. Our wine list here is domestic wines with a story, all from boutique producers. Okay. I am so excited that every one of our bottles on the list is something that is a discovery for people. But I don't want to have to teach them about it. Mm -hmm. People don't want to be taught. Yeah. People are curious by nature. Mm -hmm. And those that are will ask. Those that are not just want to enjoy their evening. Yeah. So in terms of educating the public um, in our restaurants, I I don't want, I, yeah. I'm not going to tell my guest we're buying sustainably because it's better for the planet. Though on the macro level, I think the National Restaurant Association, I think our, our local and state officials and, and those of us joining together as independent restaurants do need to create a conversation that will impact um, us culturally and make the public understand 
who we are and why we need to do things. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is that we need to communicate independent restaurants and say, this is what needs to happen. And we can't be isolated in doing it. We need to do it together because it needs to be collective because we can't compare ourselves to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to do what's right. What's what we need to survive as an industry. And we need to have the market react to that because this is what, this is what we need. Does mm-hmm. that make, I mean, and that's kind of how I feel, but I think we're aligned. Maybe I just didn't, didn't communicate it. Doesn't really matter, I guess. But, you know, I think this has been a great conversation. I want to take one more quick break to thank their sponsors, and we'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box. Bento Box delivers a restaurant online marketing and commerce platform to help restaurants succeed by giving them back control of their presence, profits, and experience. Bento Box helps new restaurants get started with websites, online ordering, and marketing. You probably already knew about the websites i mean every leading restaurant tour out there seems like they're using bento box and that's because their brand building websites are designed exclusively for the needs of a restaurant bento box builds it for you and then they give you control to update things as you need like menus hours and homepage alerts beyond awesome websites you're also getting ordering Open new revenue channels with online ordering, online catering, and e-commerce so you can sell things like gift cards and merch. And in addition, you're also getting marketing tools. Bento Box makes it easy to stay connected to your diners with pre-built automated email campaigns, built-in SEO, loyalty rewards programs, and more. All of this included with every Bento Box subscription. You should also know that Bento Box has brand new packages designed with the needs of new restaurants in mind. Get everything you need to get started marketing before you even open and succeed from day one. Current Bento Box customers have seen an average of 70% more website traffic, seven times more conversions, and five times their average ROI. I schedule a demo at getbento.com slash unstoppable and receive three months free. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We are back, and the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? My personality. Mm. What's your biggest weakness? 
my personality. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, feeling a need for others' buy-in. Mm. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? When you're growing your team, what are you looking for? What's their dream position? What's your biggest challenge today? Making sure the restaurants make money. How are you dealing with it? Being super hands-on and efficient. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a way to be, a way to act. Genuine. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? This is something that's common within your restaurants to go above and beyond what's expected from the guests, but not common throughout the industry. God. These are tough ones. I might take all of our time thinking about this. Thank God you can cut my, uh, <laughs> we can, my we can thought process. Yeah. What is common to us and maybe common to the industry, but something that we do. I can think of something that you've already told me. Well, I'm going to say giving back. Mm-hmm. We hire people coming out of homelessness here mm-hmm. at Found Kitchen. That's huge. Awesome. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Oh, shit. Uh, that's not the name of the book. Um, <laughs> sure setting the book table. Yeah. Does everybody say that? Yeah, it's, very, it's a common <laughs> one, but I won't let you just get away with saying that book because it's so. I loved um, uh, Gabriel. La, 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 Gabriella. Gala, I loved Prune. Um, Prune. Yeah. What is her book named? I, I don't remember. Prune. Maybe. Uh, no. She wrote a book. It's awesome. Yeah, I, I I read it, and it wasn't Kitchen Confidential. Was it something about the bones, some bones. Shit, Gabriella. Let's, Let's check it out. Hamilton. Yes. Blood, bones, and butter. Yes, baby, loved it. Yeah, it was a great listen. Uh, the next question I have for you is: What is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Make people feel at home. Mm. What is one service you've hired or outsourced? So this isn't a technology. This is a company, a group of people who do something better than you could ever do. So you just outsource them and do it for you. Day to day or year to year? Either. We have a company come in to clean our stone floors twice a year. Beautiful. And our accountant, Chris Hesterberg. Amazing. In the name of his business? Is Midwest Hospitality. Beautiful. Does about 50 restaurants. Now, what is one technology you've adopted within your restaurant that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, uh, anything along these lines? Profitability? You're looking around trying to find it? Oh, shit. Um, I'll say this. I noticed your websites are look beautiful. Oh, thank you. I... Um, Social media. Yeah. And Instagram. How does, I mean, I, I, I said your, your websites look beautiful because I know it's bento boxes behind those websites. They're awesome. Past- bento box has, they have, they've done such an incredible job. Any restaurant that opens, I mean, talk about giving a plug. They've got to use bento box. They are sickeningly affordable. Oh my God. I shouldn't say that because they're going to raise their prices. It is. And, and it's month to month. Incredible to work with. They're, yeah. they're the real deal. They're terrific. And a past sponsor of the podcast. Oh yeah. And a future sponsor of the podcast. And I mean, I don't try to intentionally plug things, but I agree with you. They're fabulous. Um, and the thing is like, 
you're you're a restaurateur. You're not a web designer. The, the the technology that world is changing constantly. You cannot keep up. And with this tool, you can just literally go in and make changes to your menu. It's it's meant to be stupid proof. Well, they do all hospitality yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, they their branding is beautiful. This is not an ad. They're not paying me to say this. They're not currently <laughs> sponsoring this podcast, I believe. But yeah, it's a great. They tool. do all my restaurants. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, and this is the second to last question, but it's a doozy. So get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What are those three pieces of wisdom? Pretend that you could leave three pieces of wisdom to your kids. What would it be? It's a deep one. Mm hmm. Do what you love. One. Be honest. Two. Love each other. Three. I loved this conversation. Speaking of loving, uh, you were great. Uh, We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. Who do you respect and, and admire in this industry? And if they were a guest on the show tomorrow, you'd be tuning in. My brother, Michael Morton. Nice. Where's he based? Las Vegas. Look out, Michael. I'm coming after you. I, I, I'm due for a trip to Las Vegas. But you know what? I have to be honest. What's that? It's not fair just to say him. I might have to say my brother, David Morton, too. Michael, David, the Morton brothers. But there's probably many of you. I'm coming after you guys. I'd love to get you on the show. Uh, thank you so much. And how can we connect with you? If we've really enjoyed listening to your story today, maybe we have questions. Maybe we want to join your team and work for you. What's the best way to connect? Best way to connect is just reach out to me directly, amy at foundkitchen.com. Any social handles you want to drop on us? Oh, God, how many the are there? Amy yes, Morton, I think is <laughs> the Mort. We call amy it the Mort. Amy the Mort. Yeah. That's my personal Instagram. Each of the restaurants has Instagram. Each of the restaurants has Facebook. Each of the restaurants has a website. They're all our name. And um, follow us because we try to put out there yeah. what's going on and stay current. Yep, And stick around uh, for the closing thoughts uh, because we will have a summary of today's discussion as well as uh, I'll put the links to... Uh, I should say head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is. I'm not sure what the episode number is because we kind of had to rejigger some things around, but I'll let you know in the closing thoughts. Uh, so everything will be right over there for you. And I should mention um, Bento Box. I'm pretty sure stick around th- for the closing thoughts because there is a special offer that we have with them. I just can't recall it right now. So if you guys are interested in Bento, I'll let you know what that offer is in the closing thoughts as well. Uh, just thank you so, so much. There is... No questioning, Amy. You are unstoppable. Thank you so much. I have really, really enjoyed this. And you were really good at keeping me on track. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Have some practice. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to today's guest, Amy Morin, for keeping it real. Uh, thank you so much. It was a great time connecting with you and sharing your story. We do not have a ton going on this week in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Bill Taby is joining us live in the network at 3.30 p.m. EST on Tuesday to do some peer mentoring. So if you guys did not catch that episode, episode with Bill Taby. I, I highly recommend going back and listening to that episode and joining us for some free uh, 
coaching, peer mentoring, uh, whatever you guys want to talk about, he's making himself available to you. So, so come hang out. That's again, Tuesday at 3.30 p.m. EST. And then every Tuesday and Thursday, I make myself available for one hour uh, with coffee with Eric is what we call it. And I'm just there to help you guys with whatever, just to be an ear to listen, a shoulder to lean on. Uh, maybe I can help you brainstorm. Maybe you're looking for something and I've had something referred to me that's a solution for you. Who knows? Every Tuesday and Thursday, I'm making myself available. And that's uh, when you're in the network. So go join the network, be a part of the conversation. And the last thing I want to let you know about before we say goodbye today is that when I first started this podcast, I wanted to do a book club, but I just didn't have the bandwidth with all the new things that were going on. Uh, I wanted to wait until I felt like I had a caught in stride with the network and that that stride has been caught and we're going to be launching this network the first week of july so july 5th we're uh we're going to be doing i believe at noon july 5th we'll be hosting the first session and the first book is going to be atomic habits an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones by james clear and the reason why i'm choosing this book is because i think i always say i know behind every great restaurant it's a person and if you want to be a successful restaurateur the, the journey starts with you and if, I think to be competitive you have to have discipline and discipline is not easy but if you can create habits around discipline that's a game changer so I feel like the, the first step to being successful in this industry is getting discipline and control over yourself to to make time for yourself to do the things that are most important in your life and we're going to teach you how to do that by covering atomic habits by James Clare. I hope you guys can join us. All right, that's it for today. Until next time, peace out.